So today we want to look at the life of Christ and basically go through the Gospels. What was his life like? And, and so the first point here is the whole life of Jesus is a revelation. And, and, and he's revealing in his humanity the invisible God. Right? And so and all the details of his life reveal the Father. But most of the details of his life are obscure and simply uh, hidden from us. So most of his life was um, lived um, in Nazareth. Um, first, in, so he was born in Bethlehem. Let's see. Let me. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me. So the Catechism says this: the whole life of Christ is a revelation. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus said that was the last night of his earthly life. He said that to his apostles because they said, "Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us." And Jesus, well, how long have you been with me, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is the translation into human terms of the invisible Father. Right? And therefore, all of Jesus' life, but in particular, his mercy, his, um, his love, is showing us what the, who the invisible God, his Father, um, is. All right? Um, so of the Trinity, only the second person, God the Son, has become flesh. And so, and in becoming, taking on human flesh, he reveals the other two persons, the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's especially, so the most important mystery is the last one of his earthly life, his death and then his resurrection. And often we call that the Paschal mystery. Paschal coming from the Jewish word for Passover. Um, so Paschal mystery, just a fancy way of speaking about Jesus' um, passion, death, and resurrection. Right? And so that's what most reveals God. That that's, in other words, this reveals God's love for us more than anything else could. But nevertheless, his whole life reveals the Father. Right? Because everything he did, said, and suffered had as its purpose um, two things, um, our salvation and the glory of his Father. And our restoration as children of God, um, making us um, sons and daughters and also making us into his bride. He's the bridegroom. Right? So his whole life is a mystery of redemption. Um, so already, simply in the fact of becoming man, he's revealing himself, right? Because why would he become man except to become close to us, right? In other words, um, if, and they, if he's our, our bridegroom and we're the bride and we have flesh and blood, it makes sense that he would want to take on flesh and blood to enter into relationship with us, right? So the very fact of his becoming man already reveals God's love. And then he, in effect, embraced poverty by becoming man, right? He took on the human condition, which is filled with limitations, right? And he took it on in a particular place and time, and that was the Holy Family, right? So yes, he chose a mother um, for himself and prepared her. All right, we don't get to do that. Um, 
and he chose a father for himself, um, St. Joseph, not biological, but father in every other sense, father in teaching him and providing and defending. Um, and um, Joseph was poor. Joseph was a craftsman. He was so a, um, a carpenter, um, and perhaps that meant more things than just a carpenter today, a builder, something like that. Um, but yeah, someone who worked with his hands um, in a shop, right? And um, Jesus took that up. So he took on poverty, and then he took on, in his hidden life, um, exile. I guess I'm, yeah, I'm going too fast here again. Um, so he took on um, all of our condition. So part of that was persecution. And he was persecuted even as a baby when King Herod wanted to kill the babies of Bethlehem, right? So he's born in Bethlehem. Um, and even that was a kind of um, uh, trial, trial in the sense of a difficulty, right? So Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth, and they'd prepared, you can imagine, um, you know, crib and all kinds of things. And um, they had to leave to go to Bethlehem because that's the city of David for the census. And it just so happened that in that way, they fulfilled the prophecy that had been made centuries before that the Messiah would be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. All right, so Nazareth is in the north of Israel, and Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem. All right, so that's where Jesus was born. And then they get to Bethlehem for the census, and there's no room in the inn. Right? And so again, that's also something he was taking on for us. Right? And so um, they had to um, find shelter in a manger, right? So we celebrate this at Christmas. And that is literally in a place where animals would shelter and eat. Right? And so Jesus, in everything he did, he took on our poverty, we can say. Right? And then um, he would have been circumcised in Bethlehem on the eighth day, like any other Jewish boy, right? And that would, so circumcision is the cutting of the foreskin, and that, um, yes, babies cry when they get circumcised, and they shed blood. And so Jesus would have shed blood for us on the eighth day of his human life in his circumcision. Um, and that was to simply fulfill the law, right? So Jesus took on that limitation of the law of, of Moses, the, um, the law of of, um, of Israel, of the people of Israel. Um, and then um, he would have been presented into the temple when he was 40 days old to be redeemed. Um, and so that was a rite that the firstborn of any, um, of all Jewish parents had to be taken to the temple and um, a sacrifice would be made. And it was in remembrance of the Exodus where the angel of death and protected the Israelites, but the firstborn of Egypt was killed. And so um, the, it was a, um, a rite of the law of Moses that Israelite children, the firstborn, had to be taken to the temple and bought back, as it were, from the Lord. I, Jesus doesn't need to do this, right, because he's God. But his family, the Holy Family, obeyed the law of Moses, right? So that's part of the humility of God. He takes on the human condition, and he took on the law of Moses, right? just like any other um, firstborn child of any other family in Israel. And um, Herod found out about the, um, um, 
the rumor of the birth of Messiah and had the children of Bethlehem killed. And so um, Joseph learned in a dream. So all of this is from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, right? And they fled into Egypt, right? And so Jesus took on the reality of being an exile, um, right? So today in the world, there are lots of exiles because of war. And all right, it wasn't a war in this particular case, but it was an exile because of persecution. And they lived there in Egypt for, we don't know how long, a year or two, um, until the, um, Herod died and they could come back. And so again, Jesus taking on our condition. And he's taking it on to... Um, um, so we should think of it, Jesus, first of all, by being born into history, in some way he's redeemed history, and he's taken it onto himself. He's taken humanity onto himself. Um, and we can see this even in something like um, going to Egypt, the flight into Egypt, and being in exile there, because that's what happened to the Jewish people for 400 years, right? They were, had to um, go to Egypt and find protection there. Um, and so Jesus took onto himself what Israel as a whole had experienced. And then he took on all the different stages of human life, right? So we could say he redeemed being a fetus. He redeemed infancy. He redeemed play by taking that on, right? He redeemed obedience by being obedient to Mary and Joseph. He redeemed worship by praying in the synagogue and then later in the temple. And so he took on all the things that belong to us, and he did them, and, but he's God. So that means that in taking, well, it means lots of things. It means, first of all, that we shouldn't ever think that the ordinary things of ordinary life are, you know, I don't know, beneath us, or too banal, or have no value. If God um, thought that they were valuable for him to experience, So all the stages of human life, family life, friendship. Um, so Jesus, we should imagine, the Gospels don't tell us, but certainly he would have had friends in Nazareth, right? Just like any other child, and, um, and would have played and sanctified play. Right? And so in everything, he's a model. Right? So he's a model in his um, humbling himself, in his prayer, um, in his poverty, in his accepting persecution. All right, how did God prepare the world for this? And we talked a little about this, but there's tons more to say. So God prepared Israel um, for 2,000 years by sending them prophets who gradually told, increased the longing for a Messiah. So Messiah means, did we, I explain that? It literally... Does anybody know Messiah? It means anointed one. So anointed with olive oil. All right, what's that about? In ancient Israel, and before the time of Jesus, the kings, so King David was anointed as king by a prophet, Samuel, pouring olive oil on his head and the Holy Spirit coming into King David. And before that, King Saul, the same thing happened. Right? So that's how kings were... Um, yeah, kings were anointed, and that's how they began their reign as king. Um, and then similarly, the high priest, Moses took olive oil and poured it on the head 
of Aaron, his brother, who was the first high priest. And, the, and there's a psalm that describes the oil coming down his head, down his beard, and down his um, linen robes um, on the day of his consecration. And so high priests were also consecrated in Israel with olive oil. And then prophets were also um, anointed with oil. So kings and prophets and priests in ancient Israel. And the idea was that um, there would... Um, so we, Did I speak about the, the prophecy that was given to King David? Does that ring a bell? Did, did we go through any of the messianic prophecies? What's, it, what's the first one? The first prophecy in yeah, the Bible? Yeah, yeah. Great, Genesis 3.15, right? So to Adam and Eve, that, there would, that the woman would have a son who would crush Satan's head. All right. Long time passed. And then what's the next prophecy? Anybody know? To Abraham. Oh, that he'll have a, 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 a nation. He promised him a nation of people. Right, that he would be the father of a great multitude, greater than the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. Right, and that was um, strange or maybe... Um, Difficult to believe for Abraham because his wife was barren and past menopause, right? And he had to wait 25 more years. But th there's a second part to it. So the prophecy, the promise was he would be the father of a great nation, but that one of his descendants, in one of his descendants, all nations would be blessed, right? So a blessing not only of um, Israel to be the father of Israel, but that in his descendants, um, and that would be Jesus, all nations are blessed. So that would be the first messianic prophecy given to Israel, given to Abraham. And that was repeated then to Isaac and Jacob. Right? And so there's the whole question of the lineage. Did we go through that? Yeah. So we said that um, Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and um, Isaac, and it's Isaac, etc. And so there were prophecies that gave the lineage. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And which one gets the, uh, which one will be the Messiah? Judah, Judah which um, seems strange. He's the fourth son, and he's not the best son. That would be um, Joseph, right? Anyway, it's simply, it's gratuitous. God picks whom he wills. All right, David is from the tribe of Judah, but David's living a thousand years later. So a thousand years later from the tribe of Judah, David um, gets the prophecy that his offspring would reign forever on the throne of, um, of Israel, as it were, over the tribes of Jacob, right? And that's a prophecy of the Messiah. Um, now, the word Messiah literally means anointed one because David was the anointed king. And so the idea was that there would be another king who would be a son of David who would rule not just for 70 years or 50 years, as David had, but without end, right? And that's Jesus, who is our king. Um, he reigns today from heaven, but he still reigns, okay? So yeah, so Messiah means the anointed one, um, and Jesus is not only king, he's also prophet, and he's prophet by revealing his father in everything he did during his life. And then he's priest, and we'll talk more about that next time, but he's priest because he offered the one perfect sacrifice to reconcile us with God, and he's given us that sacrifice in the, in the Mass, the Eucharist. Right? That's what we celebrate every Sunday. Yeah. 
Right? So there were so God prepared for his coming by many prophecies. And that was maybe the most important, the one given to David. But there were many, many others that came after and emphasized different aspects of that. That the Messiah would be um, king, priest, and prophet. Um, and that he would um, shepherd Israel forever. Right? And be a, the good shepherd. Yeah, and we're going um, to, shortly, we're going to start the liturgical season of Advent um, in December. And so that's the four Sundays before Christmas. And in that time, we read the prophecies, some of the, um, not all of them, they're lots, but we'll read many of the prophecies, especially from the prophet Isaiah, about the coming Messiah. All right, and um, Isaiah has prophecies about the Messiah coming as a child. Um, the virgin birth, um, a child is born to us. If you've heard Handel's Messiah, it's all taken from the different prophecies about um, first about his birth and then about his, his passion. All right, so we relive this during this season of Advent. Right? So it's like for four weeks, we put ourselves in the mind of ancient Israel expecting the Messiah to come. Um, obviously, he's already come. We're not expecting him to come the same way he did the first time, but we're expecting him to come again at the end of history, right? And so the season of Advent puts both of those themes together. Huh? Is he going to come as a baby again, or is he going to come as an adult? As an adult, yeah. In other words, he's now, um, he'll come as he now is with his glorified humanity, um, and he'll come to, um, yeah, to raise... To give his, so he's, he was raised from the dead before the time, as it were. And he will share that, his resurrection, with all humanity when he returns. Which will be then the end of history. And nobody knows when that will happen. And we'll talk about that again in a couple weeks when we look at the last things. The, the resurrection, when Jesus comes, the second coming. Is it a physical resurrection? Physical. That's right. Physical. In other words, all of us will get these bodies, right? So we'll, we'll, um, we'll have to die. It's reasonable to think. Um, our bodies will turn into dust, and God knows how to raise them again. So. The same body, but not corruptible anymore. Right? So the same body, but with um, uh, not subject to death and limitation. So my spirit in heaven. Right. We'll have our souls... Set, we call them separated souls. So at the moment of death, our souls will separate from our body. And the resurrection, we get it back. It gets joined back together, never to be separated again. So will I still be up here in theory, or would it be a new earth? New heavens and earth is the way scripture speaks. What exactly that means, no one knows. All right? But a body requires an earth. And so all of Israel's history was a preparation for um, his coming. And it was a preparation in two ways. Um, by prophecy, so that would be um, like what I mentioned, but also by way of typology. We talked about this about a long time ago, six weeks ago or maybe two months ago. We said that God reveals himself by words, but also by deeds, that is, the very events of Israel's life were foreshadowing the coming Messiah. 
And, oh, I should say one more thing. The word Christ, does anybody know what that means? That, it's Greek for anointed one. So it means the same thing as Messiah translated into Greek. Um, yeah, so God prepared for um, the incarnation also by the sacrifices and rituals of Israel. And so even then, the sacrifice of Isaac, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Not that God wanted Abraham to actually kill his son Isaac, but he wanted it to prefigure the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so we could say that God prepared for the incarnation and the events of Christ's life also by the events of Israel's history, things like the sacrifice of Isaac. So Isaac didn't actually get sacrificed because God sent an angel, stop, don't, don't do it. Um, it was to test um, Abraham's love, basically, um, and to prefigure Christ. All right, so many different things um, prefigured Christ. We could say all the sacrifices of Israel. So Israel, every day, offered sacrifices in the temple. So um, a lamb every morning and evening. Every one of those lambs is in a type of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. And a particular way on the Passover. On the Passover, every Jewish family had to come to Jerusalem with a lamb. And so there would have been lots and lots of lambs sacrificed on that day. So they, 10,000 or 20,000 lambs. And all of those prefiguring Christ's sacrifice. And something, so that was, he prepared Israel directly, but indirectly prepared the pagan peoples by some expectation, but an expectation much less informed. A dim expectation of his coming. All right, of all the um, prophets of Israel, who's the greatest? We might, somebody, if somebody asked me that, I might think Isaiah, because Isaiah gave the, maybe the greatest number of prophets, and that, that would be a fair answer. But um, Jesus says that the greatest prophet of Israel was John the Baptist, and that's because he was, all the other prophets announced him from afar as one who would come in the fullness of time, right? But John the Baptist announces him as here and now. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right, and he announced him by, um, um, so he was inspired to do a baptism. Um, and so, did I speak about this at all? No. In, in Israel, there was a rite of baptism. They, um, they would have used, obviously, a Hebrew term, to, but it's the term meaning the exact same thing. Baptism means immersion. So there was a rite of immersion in to um, cleanse one if one became ritually unclean. For example, if you touched a corpse, you became ritually unclean. If you ate in a pagan household, you became ritually unclean. Um, a woman after childbirth was ritually unclean until she um, was um, immersed in water. Right? So it was a kind of baptism, but not one time as we do, but done many times during the life of an Israelite. All right, John the Baptist modified that custom by um, instituting a baptism of repentance. In, um, um, so not simply a baptism because you touched a corpse, but a baptism of repentance from sin 
to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. That's, that's what he did. And he did this in the River Jordan. Um, and, um, and Jesus came to him, right, while he was baptizing. And Jesus also asked to be baptized together with the other people of Israel, right? And John um, recognized him and doesn't want to do it because he says, you should be baptizing me, not me, you. And Jesus says, no, go ahead and do it. Um, and that was the sign that, um, that was the occasion that Jesus was manifested to Israel, right? So there was a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Um, and the, the spirit descended like a dove and rested on Jesus. Right? And, and then John the Baptist said, yes, I was um, the one on whom the spirit descended is the, um, the Messiah and the Lamb of God. Right? So I'm kind of butchering that. But um, so Jesus, up in, he was 30 years old at that time. He had lived a hidden life up until that time. And that's when he became manifested before Israel as the Messiah. And so, in that sense, um, John the Baptist had the greatest role of all the prophets of Israel, right? He's the one who could say, this one right here, this Jesus of Nazareth, is the one you have been waiting for. Okay. I should say something before I get there. So, sorry, I messed up the order here. Um, so before that, we said that Jesus lived a hidden life. That's really interesting. So... He manifested himself to Israel when he was 30, and his public ministry lasted about three years. Um, so that means that nine-tenths of his life, he lived a completely hidden life. And then only one-tenth, he did miracles and taught and gave the Sermon on the Mountain, things like that. And, and so most of his life was lived in obscurity. Why do you suppose that? Why, why would God do that? Jesus is God made man. He's got infinite wisdom. He could have, I don't know, written books or anything that you like. And he spent it totally obscure in this tiny little village of Nazareth, which maybe had a population of 100. Um, and all we know about his life is that he um, worshipped with his parents. He worked in Joseph's um, shop. He took over after the death of Joseph. We don't know when that was. Um, and that when he was 12, he came to Jerusalem with the Holy Family and got lost there for three days. Um, and that's about all we know of that time. Do you want so, he, he's just living a, a regular life. Yeah, right. And so why? Maybe to protect him. What's that? To protect him. Or, uh, okay, sure. It wasn't, it wasn't yet time, we could say, for him to begin his public ministry. Yes, fantastic, because that's most of our life, right? Most of our life is ordinary life, unspectacular. Nobody, um, not something that gets written up in the newspaper or recorded in history books. And Jesus wanted to redeem that also, and especially because that's 99% of our lives. Excellent. Right? In other words, Jesus wanted to redeem it, and he redeems it by taking it on. And he also wants to show that it has value, right? and just as much value as the other parts that are more glamorous. Excellent. Questions on that? Quick question. Uh-huh. Um, whenever 
everybody but yeah. Everybody yeah. But right. Okay. Right. Literally, it comes from the countryside. So when the um, church started to expand in the first centuries, the um, they were it was the cities that were the first places where people became Christian. And so the countryside, that's pagan, comes from the fields, and they were the places that Christianity took more time to enter. That's the origin of the term. But yeah, we use it simply to mean the natural religions of the world other than Judaism and Christianity. Yeah, and so basically what Jesus is teaching is the importance of ordinary life and um, the, we could say the virtues of family life work, right? So most of that time he would have spent working. Right? just like the rest of us. And so he's sanctified human work and given to our human work, we could say a divine dimension um, that we too can sanctify work and family life and um, leisure, right? So Jesus would have had leisure time as we do um, done in the spirit. Okay, all right, so he, um, he starts his public ministry with this baptism of repentance. All right, did Jesus um, get baptized with a baptism of repentance because he had something to repent of? No, right? So Jesus was without sin. We said last time, Mary was without sin. All right, if Mary, who's a mere human being, was without sin, much more, um, importantly, her son, who's the redeemer, has to be without sin. All right, so Jesus never sinned. So how could he um, accept a baptism of repentance? Uh-huh. Similar to everything else, he's redeeming baptism. Yeah, right. He's taking it. So great. He, he wanted to be baptized to redeem baptism and give it a sanctifying power. Right? So he's not receiving it to get something from it. He's receiving it to give something to it. So baptism, Christian baptism, takes its origin from Jesus being baptized by John in the River Jordan. Right? And from that moment on, Christian baptism had the power to forgive sins. All right? And yes, he didn't, um, he wasn't, um, there's a second way you can answer. That was the most important. So he can't repent for himself because he has no sin. But he's putting himself in solidarity with mankind. And therefore, yes, this is a baptism of repentance, and Jesus is repenting for us. Right? And we could think of his whole life as an act of repenting for us, and especially um, on Calvary. Right? That life of repenting for us that we could say is, um, is manifested in a baptism of repentance um, ends up on, on Calvary. Okay? And then the second thing he's showing us is by having, so when Jesus got baptized, there was the voice of the Father, you are my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased, and the Spirit descended. It was a Trinitarian event in the sense that the Son is being manifested as the Son by the Father with the Spirit um, being manifested as going between the two, as the love between the two. All right, Jesus is showing us by having that happen that that's what happens when we get baptized, so when we get baptized, that same mystery gets um, shared to us. So at baptism, we become sons of the Father and receive the Holy Spirit. 
And then confirmation deepens that gift of the Spirit. Right, so basically, Jesus was showing us in his own person what baptism and confirmation do for us. They bring us, they make us sons of the Father um, with the gift of the Spirit, and they make us members, we could say, of the family of the Trinity, which, all right, family, I'm stretching, the t it's an analogy, but that's what the church is. The church is a communion that involves a communion with God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. Question? All right, so the baptism of Jesus is a prefiguring of our baptism. And this is also why he wanted to start his public ministry in that way, to show that that's the start of the Christian life, getting baptized. All right, we'll come back to baptism later on when we look at the sacraments. But basically, baptism um, gives us a share of Jesus' life and makes us a member of his body, the church. And yes, gives the spirit. Okay. So what did then Jesus do? Let me just look ahead and see what slides I've got here. Um, so there's, after Jesus got baptized, what, does anybody know what happened then? Did he go uh, away? Did he, like, he went somewhere in solitude. That's right. So he go, right after he was baptized, he, the Spirit impelled him into the wilderness, and he fasted and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights and was tempted by Satan. What was that about? Why did he choose to do that? Okay. Mm -hmm. he, had, uh, he was beginning to come to remember his life in, uh, in heaven and was strengthening his relationship with the Father. Okay, he's definitely strengthening his relationship, but he didn't need it to be strengthened because it was never weak. So we shouldn't think of it in the sense that he needed to strengthen it more or something like that. So just, we should think of it like his baptism. Who did he get baptized for? Himself? or for us. So that's the way we should think of this also. Jesus is giving a model also for us. That, so he's about to begin his public ministry, which is gonna be a conflict, right? And in fact, a continual conflict that's gonna end up um, on Calvary. And so he starts it by dedicating himself to prayer in what we call a spiritual retreat. This is a great practice in the spiritual life to do, some people do it, say three days every year, um, and some, um, so some of my students have taken a 30-day retreat modeled on Jesus of 40 days, um, and it's called very often spiritual exercises, and it's modeled after um, Jesus. And so basically he's showing us that when we go into ministry or we go into start the Christian life, it's a good thing to set aside some time for God alone. Every Sunday has that purpose, but it can be good in the spiritual life to take more time, especially when, um, so for example, my seminarians are training for become priests. They're required by canon law of the church to take um, a, a, a retreat of five days before they get ordained. And in that time, they dedicate themselves to prayer and their relationship with God. 
I, so Jesus is showing us the way. Not that he needed it, but that we're the ones who need it. And again, he's redeeming it by taking it on. And so that's the first thing. Second thing, it's really odd, right, that what happens when he does this? He gets tempted by Satan. And the Gospels actually give us three temptations. Anybody know what they are? First one is he's been fasting for 40 days, and so he's hungry, right? And so Satan tempts him. Well, if you're really the son of God, take these stones and make them into bread and eat. And what does Jesus say? It is not bread alone that man should Yeah, it is written, it is not by bread alone that um, human life isn't by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right? And so he answers Satan by quoting scripture. This is also showing us something. We too get tempted in the Christian life. And, and sometimes we don't realize it, right? That makes it even worse. Um, and Jesus shows us the way. How should we um, act when we're tempted? Um, it's really helpful if we know the word of God and can respond using God's own word. Right? But in any case, we need to pray when we get tempted right? and ask for help. Right? So, Jesus, so that's the first one. Second one is he's taken to the temple and tempted to basically spectacle. Um, throw yourself off the temple and your angels will save you. And by some you know, great miracle like this, people will come to believe. And Jesus says, you will not tempt the Lord your God. Again, quoting scripture. And then the third temptation he takes them up and shows them all the kings of the world. Say, right? It's, it, there's something comical about the temptations, right? Because Satan doesn't fully realize who Jesus is. And that's part of what Satan's trying to do is test who is Jesus, right? And so he shows them all the kings of the world. All right, Jesus is God. He's made all those kingdoms. All of their power comes from him. But Satan is tempting him. If you worship me, I will give you power over the kingdoms of the earth, right? And and Jesus responds, and the Lord alone you shall worship. Right? And Satan leaves him. And so this is useful for us because we get tempted in these ways. And we get tempted in, everyone gets tempted in a way proper to our, um, ourselves, our weaknesses, and our mission. And Jesus was tempted with regard to his mission as Messiah. So basically we can think of that first temptation as he's being tempted to save the world by bread. And that can be a temptation. We might think, you know, what the world really needs isn't, you know, religion, which just causes division. A lot of people say this, right? But what we really need is um, food for the world. And that would be enough. But would that be enough? No. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Right? So that would be a temptation also of the church. It's a good thing to feed the hungry, right? A very good thing. But that can't be the whole mission of the church. And then the second thing is spectacle. This is temptation to want to, you know, um, convert the world by um, um, a spectacle. Um, and Jesus doesn't do that. He converts the world in what's the utter opposite. I mean, I guess this is a spectacle of its own kind. Um, but the utter opposite of a glamorous um, miracle. And then the third is the temptation to want political power. And that think that political power can solve all the world's, the problems of the world, right? If just that political power was rightly functioning, well, what's the problem? Politicians are human beings, and human beings need, need to have their hearts converted. 
And so politics can't be the answer either, right? And so these are all kind of temptations um, reducing Jesus' mission. All right, so Satan tempts each one of us in ways proper to us. All right, after that, does anybody know what's the next thing that Jesus does? shortly thereafter, but the very first thing is he goes to a wedding. We talked about it last week at the very end. He goes to a wedding in Cana where his mother is, and that's where he does his first miracle, taking water that, so they run out of wine at this miracle, at this wedding. Jewish weddings last a week, and um, you have to invite the whole village, right? So the whole town of Cana is at this wedding, and when you run out of wine, that's a big deal. And so Jesus took the water, a ton of um, gallons, I don't know, um, I forget the number, but it's something, something in the like a thousand um, or hundreds of gallons of water he makes into the best wine. And that's his first miracle. And he does it because somebody interceded. Who was that? Mary. Right? So that's his first miracle. Um, and then we get a kind of resume of his preaching. Um, and it's in two points. Anybody know? So Mark and Matthew tell us, kind of give a summary that he uh, preached repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? So basically two things there. He's announcing the kingdom of God, and the way we enter the kingdom of God is by repentance. Right? So that's kind of the summary of all of Jesus' teaching. So we need to look at what are those two things. So repentance is the easy part. Repentance means recognizing attitudes that are contrary to the golden rule and to, we could say the double commandment of love, right? Double commandment of love is loving God above all things and my neighbor is myself, right? And all of the commandments are summed up in that double commandment. So repentance essentially means being aware of things that I've done that are contrary to the double commandment and, and being sorry for it and resolving with the help of God to break from it, right? So that's the repentance part. Um, and yes, we can't do that alone. We ask God to aid us to do that. But that's, the, um, that's necessary to enter the kingdom. So we need to look at what is the kingdom that Jesus is speaking about. Anybody? We talked about this a little while ago, but when we looked at the Our Father. Church. Exactly, his church, right? So it, Jesus preached the kingdom Right, which meant, um, so a kingdom is a visible, so Israel was a kingdom, right? It, had, it used to have a king, it didn't have a king anymore. But um, a kingdom, but it was not an ordinary kingdom, it was a kingdom um, in which God was worshipped. And what Jesus is speaking about is precisely the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. That's, they're just synonyms. And Jews don't, um, they were... Um, they, didn't, they avoided saying the word God, right? So when Jesus would say kingdom of heaven, what it meant is kingdom of God, and Mark translates it in that way. Right? It's the same, the same phrase. Um, and so the kingdom is something visible, but the kingdom of God is both visible and invisible. And we'll talk about it later on when we look at the church. But we could say that a kingdom both has um, a visibility Right? And so the kingdom of God is visible because there's a visible right by which we enter, which is baptism. Right? And so the members of the church are visible, and this is why um, names get written down in a baptismal re register, because it's a public event that marks the visible church. Right? 
But the whole point of baptism is to receive something invisible, the life of God and the forgiveness of sins and divine sonship. So the church is both visible and invisible at the same time. Right? It's a kingdom, visible, but it's the kingdom of God, and therefore, in part, in the most important part, invisible. And so that's what Jesus um, preached about all through his public ministry, the kingdom, right? Which we could say is the church, right? Church here on earth, but also the church that will continue forever in heaven. Okay, and then um, he taught um, and healed. So basically his public ministry involved two kinds of actions, um, teaching and healing or doing other miracles. And the healing was also a kind of visible, um, yeah, visible teaching. Um, so he didn't heal everyone. He healed some people. He didn't come to abolish all evils here below, but to free us from sin. And that's part of the temptations of Satan, right? That first turning rocks into bread would be the idea that the Messiah came simply to eliminate all evil. And we know that's not true because we live 2,000 years later and there are tons of physical evils still in the world. Right, but that's not the principal enemy. The principal enemy is moral evil, the slavery of sin. And so he also, among the miracles that he did, is he drove out demons also. Right? So he healed people who were sick, he healed lepers. Um, and in all of those healings, he's also teaching about who he is and about the sacraments. So let me take an example. Early in the Gospel of Mark, um, there's an episode where a leper comes to Jesus. All right, lepers um, had to stay far away because it's so contagious, right? And so that you couldn't touch a leper. But this leper comes to Jesus and says, if you will, you can heal me. What does Jesus say? I will be healed, right? And the leper is healed. And so we see from this that Jesus does this miracle in a way different from the prophets of Israel. Prophets of Israel did some miracles by invoking the God of Israel, right? But Jesus cured in his own name. And in, we could say that's a, a way that he was, in effect, showing his identity to be God. Right? I will be clean. Right? In other words, this power is coming from me. And there's another time where he's asleep in the boat and... Um, the tempest comes, and the disciples wake him up. Right? And he says, ah, why were you worried? You have little faith. But then he turns to the winds and the sea, and what does he say? Be quiet. And they obeyed him. Right? And the disciples marveled, who is this that the winds and the waves obey? Right? So again, pointing. So his miracles point to his identity as the one who is omnipotent. Right? In other words, the one who has the power of God. But sometimes his healings also showed his sacraments. So a beautiful example of this is one day there was a paralytic who was brought to Jesus and the house was too full. Right? So it was packed, as you can imagine. If there's miracles, people tend to come from all around. And um, they couldn't get into the house. So what do they do? They take him out to the roof, open the roof. So I guess Israelite houses had features different than our roofs. And um, lowered him in on a stretcher. Right? And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, you know, be healed. He says, your sins are forgiven. And first of all, it's odd because 
they, that's not what they were asking. But um, the people who are there say, who is this, right? Only God can forgive sins. Who is this that's saying your sins are forgiven? And then Jesus, who knew what they were thinking, right? He says, which is harder to say um, your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk, right? And so he tells them, stand up and walk, and, um, and he does. And so the physical miracle was a sign that Jesus has the power to forgive sins, right? And that he's given that power to men, right? And that's the sacrament of confession in the church, right? And so the physical miracle was to show the sacrament of confession. And he did a similar miracle and before he explained the Eucharist. So in John chapter 6, he wants to, the next day he speaks about the bread of life, which is about the Eucharist. But the day before, um, you had uh, 5,000 disciples in this deserted place with no dinner, and he took right, um, a few loaves of bread and fed the 5,000. So that was a miracle of feeding, and it was, its purpose, yes, was to, they didn't have supper, but its real purpose was to show um, that he could, um, if he could do the miracle of loaves, um, he could do a greater miracle of spiritual nourishment, which is the Eucharist. Right? So Jesus' healings were teaching also. All right. One of the most important things he did in his public ministry was choosing the 12. And so he called 12. So he had various disciples. Of the various disciples, he chose 12 of them. Peter and Andrew, James and John, um, and so these were mostly fishermen. Right? So they were disciples who were following him, and the only one who was probably learned, who had a, um, could write and read and write, was Matthew, because he was a tax collector. But that made it even worse, right? So a tax collector in Jewish society this time was the most despised profession, because you had to collaborate with the Romans, and normally they took, um, um, there was corruption. And so tax collectors were universally hated. Um, and so the fact that Jesus chose a tax collector to be one of his apostles, right, was, would have been shocking. And it makes sense, though, that he would be the one who wrote the first gospel, right, because he would have known how to read and write. So he gave these 12, um, he called them apostles. Apostles means those who are sent. And Jesus made a kind of connection between his being sent by the Father becoming man and his sending the apostles out. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. So he's given to his apostles um, a huge responsibility to represent him and to continue his mission after his death, resurrection, and ascension out of this world. All right, so basically he's chosen. So this is, um, if you read the, um, looking at world affairs, very often there are dictators who don't have a good plan of what happens after the dictator dies. Um, Jesus is not like that, right? He's the king, and he has very much in his mind that he's going to die, and yes, he will rise from the dead, but he will leave this earth 40 days later. I'll explain that next week. That's his ascension. And um, he's concerned, or not concerned, but he's, he has a plan for what will happen to his church, his kingdom, after he leaves, right? And that's why he chooses these 12 and gives them the powers to do what he was doing. 
right? And that is, um, above all, to, um, uh, I'll explain this in the future, to celebrate the Mass, to forgive sins, to heal the sick, and to govern his church. All right, so we can see that Jesus clearly has in mind um, a visible church with a visible hierarchy that's going to be founded on the 12 apostles. So, all right, that's 2,000 years ago, 1,990 years ago. Across the street, we've got Archbishop Rosansky, who's the successor of the apostles. That's all the bishops of the Catholic world. Question? Um, 12 is one of those numbers for the 12 um, tribes of Israel, right? And so for, I mean, again, it's just showing the connection of Israel and the church. So Israel was formed of 12 tribes um, that shared a common faith and, and were brought together. So the 12 apostles is showing that the church is the new Israel. Judas was unfaithful, right? And, and committed suicide. And so they replaced Judas with um, Matthias, so that there'd be number 12. But pretty soon, the number went way beyond 12 because um, the 12 apostles had to appoint successors in every place, right? And so the number of bishops increased beyond the 12. And even Paul became an apostle, not one of those original 12. And of the 12, there's always, whenever there's a list of the 12 apostles, who's listed first? Peter always. And there's a reason for that. Jesus wanted his church to be governed um, by a college, a group of men, um, the 12 apostles. But he, if you have 12 of equal power, what's likely to happen? And this was the, um, suppose you had in the United States 12 states and no federal government. What's going to happen? Those 12 states are going to not get along, right? So it's, in order to keep unity, there has to be one who, whose task it is to maintain the unity of the 12. That's Peter's role, the, um, to be the principle of unity of all the apostles. So 12 at first, but then pretty soon, hundreds. right? And so if you have 100 equal apostles and no one who has a certain authority over the whole, right? it's going to splinter. And so Jesus, from the beginning, provided, as we would expect, divine wisdom to provide for his church by picking Peter to be in the first place. All right? And in, in particular, so there's a, um, a key episode, is um, halfway through his public ministry, he, um, they're at a certain place um, in, on the northern boundary of Israel, and um, Jesus asked them, um, who do people say that I am? And they give different views, right? Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Jeremiah or, or um, John the Baptist. But who do you say I am? Jesus asked them. That's, if you think about it, that's the most important question for every human being. And every human being has to answer the question that Jesus put before the 12 apostles. Who is Jesus? Right? And, what is, and so Peter answers um, for all of them and says... You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Right? So that's the confession of Peter. And what does Jesus say then? You are Peter. Right? Peter means rock. And he made Peter the rock um, on which I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? So Jesus provided for his church by selecting Peter to be a permanent foundation 
first church. All right, Peter's going to die, right? So it couldn't just have been the person Peter, but it would have to be the office of Peter that continues. All right, Peter, we'll, we'll go over this in a few weeks when we look at the church. But Peter um, um, went from um, Jerusalem to Antioch and ended up in Rome. And he was um, martyred there and crucified, actually, crucified upside down in Rome. And he's buried in, um, under St. Peter's Basilica. Right? And that's where his bones are. And that's why the Bishop of Rome is the successor of Peter. We'll come back to that in two weeks or whenever that is. All right, so Peter received the keys of the kingdom. And that's a symbol. Keys of the kingdom would mean like the, um, the prime minister um, in ancient Israel would have the keys to the gates of Jerusalem. Right? And so it's a way of making Peter Jesus' viceroy or prime minister here on earth. And he gave him the task to keep the faith and convert his brothers and, and strengthen them. Okay. Other uh, mysteries, I should mention something on the, um, his moral teaching is summarized in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's from the um, chapters um, 5 through 7 of Matthew's Gospel. And so that's a must read. Um, it's not long, three chapters, and it's um, kind of a summary of Jesus' moral teaching. And it starts with the Beatitudes, blessed, and it turns everything upside down. And we'll go over this when we look at the Christian life later on. But basically, the world says, you know, blessed are the rich. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor. But he clarifies the poor in spirit. In other words, one can be rich and be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is not to put excessive value on riches, um, but to have humility. And um, uh, yeah, it's, it's poor either materially, but above all, in heart. Um, blessed are the meek, right? We say, blessed are the self-assertive. Blessed are those who mourn. And we say, you know, blessed are those who have nothing to mourn over, which can't happen in this life. Um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, um, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, because they shall find mercy. Blessed are the pure in spirit, or pure in heart, for they shall see God. So again, Jesus turning upside down, we could say the maxims of the world, whereas we tend to right, put um, somebody is happy if they you know, maximize pleasure, power, wealth, etc., um, health. Um, and then, yeah, so, and there's a tons more to it. We'll come back to this when we look at the Christian life. Okay, another mystery of Jesus' life is his transfiguration. So he gave um, after um, he made Peter his, um, uh, the rock on which he would found his church, he gave the first prophecy of his passion. We'll talk about that next week. Um, but he followed it up by being transfigured before them, appearing on Mount Tabor, which is a mountain in northern Israel, um, where, um, so appearing light brighter than the sun. And so that was um, showing them how his body would be at his resurrection, a glorious body. And so it was a way of giving them hope before his passion. Right? He'd just given them the first prediction that he was, so what he's, Peter gets it right, you are the Messiah. But Peter is expecting a glorious Messiah who conquers, you know, who defeats Caesar. And Jesus, his notion of Messiah is totally the opposite of what Peter and the other apostles have in mind. 
Right? And so that's when he tells them that he's going to be um, crucified and will rise on the third day. And so he shows them the transfiguration to give them hope, basically, and to be a kind of image of the world to come. And, and then the um, questions, anything about his public ministry or teaching? So, and so if, if you go to daily mass and follow the daily readings, um, the gospels, most of the gospels are about his teaching during his public ministry, right? And the best way to learn it, um, you can simply read the gospels continually or read the gospels in the daily cycle given to us by the um, mass every day. Um, but yeah, it's... Um, the. The Gospels are books that we can read again and again and again, right? Because we can never think that we've fully uh, incorporated. And the reason is because the Gospels are always challenging us by turning upside down, right, the values of the world. All right, so then the last thing, we'll start maybe here next time, that um, um, Jesus... During his public ministry, he claimed to be God, and he said things that would have gotten him killed, but it wasn't yet his time. Um, but he knew that his time was coming, and um, so the week before um, his death, he comes, um, and that's Palm Sunday, and we'll start here next time. All right? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we give you thanks, Almighty God, for the gift of the life of Jesus. May we come study his life in the Gospels, come to know it intimately, and enter into relationship ever deeper with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.